I want to introduce our storyteller for the day, uh, Polly Lindbergh. And uh, many of you know her already, and she needs no introduction. So Polly, come on up. She's been with us for a while, and I'm so excited to hear from her. Good morning. My name is Polly Lindbergh. My story today is about a God full of surprises. <clears throat> a story about God's loving kindness to me, both in times of great joy and in times of doubt and sorrow. I was born in Des Moines, Iowa in 1930. Life was good. Through those early years <clears throat> with one sister, a very special friend, and two loving parents. My most delightful memories were of times with my best friend, my horse, a goat, two ducks, and a dog. I was an animal lover. Every day my mother would read from the scriptures to us after breakfast, which just turned my heart to believe that in a loving God, a creator, and a friend, life was good. And during this time, Billy Graham came to our city for a series of meetings, and my heart was drawn closer to God, who hated sin, but who loved the sinner. Though I had made a decision of belief in my confirmation days, I now saw God as a very personal God, a forgiving God, who became my savior. After graduation from high school in 1948, I entered nurses training and graduated in 1951. During my time in training, I met my dear John, who was a physician in the Naval Reserves. Our love blossomed and we were married on October 27, 1951. He was, uh, he was stationed at the Naval Reserves there, and I worked part-time there in the, nurse, in the uh, paraplegia section. Uh, see, we decided to come out west, and our desire was to start a family right away. But after the loss of a couple of pregnancies, we really prayed to the Lord fervently for clear direction. Total joy came to us in the adoption of a little baby girl, our first, in 1955. We were still at the Naval Reserves at that time. A baby sister then came in 1957, and we felt very blessed. In 1961, to our surprise and our joy, we adopted twins. John is a twin also. One boy and a girl. And so, imagine then in 1968, when another little boy came into our family, our last. Parenting brings untold joy, as you all know who have children, but huge responsibilities and through those years, 
our children brought to us 13 grandchildren. A lot of joy we've had, a lot of fun. In everything it says, give thanks, for this is God's will for you. And that's what we did. Then in 2009, I was diagnosed with cancer of the nose. Again came fear and doubt. After the long surgery, I was unable to sleep. Oh, Lord, I said, I need you now. So I was completely surprised when on the TV came beautiful scenes of God's world with scripture and music, just lifting my spirits to a loving God. God's mercy was so evident to me. I have found, as did Jonah, that God has his plans for which if and when we listen and learn and accept his way, we will be more than blessed. I'm going to read to you now from God's word. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and he said, oh please Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out and the city from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God anointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion then on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? The word of the Lord. We are in a sermon series called 
O Jonah. And it's our last chance to say it the way uh, we're supposed to say it. And it goes, O Jonah. <laughs> o Jonah. Because he doesn't understand God and his ways, and he's confused. And so we're going to uh, identify with him while making fun of him. The title of today's sermon is Good Reason. Uh, there is uh, the main uh, thrust of the chapter, I think, is about anger and it's about violence. And uh, I, in no way, uh, knew that uh, it's going to be somehow connected to the events this week. And so I'm not making a commentary on, um, you know, uh, the Florida shooting or any kind of violence in our society. Uh, but you are free in your own mind to uh, draw connections and conclusions. But we're going to be covering uh, that topic uh, some today. I want to begin with a story from many moons ago. Uh, it's a story about when I was nine years old. And it had been a year, about a year since I had come to this great country as an immigrant. And uh, a little bit of context is that uh, my parents grew up uh, uh, through the Korean War, and they experienced famine and hardship, and they came to this country. Uh, my dad came to study computer science, and we lived as immigrants, and we had run out of money, and my dad was both working and going to school, which we didn't expect for him to be doing. And my mom had to start working, and we were latchkey kids before that term was a term. And so life was hard. We were living uh, beyond our margins, and it was sort of survival every day. And one day for dinner, we had gathered, and uh, my mom had made beef stew, the kind of Korean beef stew, and there was meat in there, there was beef in there, and that was kind of a rare thing, because meat was more expensive, right? And uh, uh, about a little context about me is that I was a really picky eater, and my mom hated that about me. It was so frustrating for her. And she always wanted me to eat. And uh, one of the advice that she gave my wife when we got married 21 years ago was, Susie, don't ever fall into the trap of spoon-feeding him. Don't do it. And uh, she hasn't done it. Uh, but that's just from, you know, raising me. I was a difficult kid. So this one night, she had made beef stew. And I kind of had... Uh, figured out that we were in a tough spot in life, and life was hard, and I, I knew the backdrop to my parents' own story. Uh, so I somehow knew that if I asked of this, they would be happy and proud. So I asked for more beef in my stew, because uh, I wanted more. And uh, my parents, not really hearing me, assumed that I had asked for less beef. And so they were immediately offended and upset with me. And I remember uh, just a hand came across the table and smacked me on the side of the head, and I was sent to their bedroom uh, to go think about my ridiculous request to not eat the meat that they had worked really hard to provide for me for, right? And to this day, I am still upset about the injustice <laughs> of that situation. I think about and even now I'm having some feelings and in fact, this is such a point of non-closure for me that about two years ago when my parents were visiting, I brought this up at the dinner table. I said, hey, guys, you remember that? And they had no memory of it whatsoever. And I'm still completely unsatisfied with the outcome. And I think about this, and I think, is there no God in this universe? One day when we're face-to-face, -face, God's going to set the record straight. 
There's a key question here uh, found in verse 4. And this is sort of the question that I think this chapter pivots on. And the question is what God asked Jonah twice. This is the one in verse 4 when God says, Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? What's the injustice here? Make your case before me. Why are you angry? And I really like the fact that God asks this question because it's not just a smack across the table. It's not a reaction on his part, but God is meeting Jonah where he's at. And he's saying, hey, Jonah, listen, I want to understand you. Reason with me. Tell me what your rationale is. What's the reason for your anger? Have you ever thought about the fact that you have a rationale behind your, behind your anger? It's not just a feeling. Before the feeling came, there's a reason. And God is inviting us to, to understand it. What is it? Why are you angry? And so we're going to do two points today. The first is why Jonah is angry. And the second is why God is not. Why Jonah is angry. Verse 1 says this, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Now, that's the New American Standard version of the translation. If you actually read the Hebrew, or the second iteration of that translation of that verse is from Young's literal translation, and this is much closer to what it actually says in the Hebrew. It says, And it is grievous unto Jonah a great evil, and he is displeased at it. This word that's translated uh, as anger appears six times in this chapter. So this chapter, we can safely conclude, is about anger. <clears throat> but that's not actually the correct translation. It's actually the word evil. And it's something to the effect of because of the evil that Jonah saw, that he perceived as unresolved in the universe, Jonah became evil. In other words, evil made Jonah become himself evil. So there's really powerful insight already right there. And it leads us to the first lesson we learn as to why Jonah is angry. And that is that often anger is misguided. Jonah became evil because of the evil. Now, right there, we know that's not necessarily the most productive response to evil. Right? But that is sort of the default best that the human being has to offer. So Jonah is saying that this universe is filled with evil and injustice, and I am angry because I don't perceive that God is proportionally angry enough. If this is what the Ninevites have done, shouldn't God do something that's proportionate to that level of evil? And so in Jonah's mind, the only proper response to the evil that he saw is for himself to become evil. And he's betraying the fact that ultimately Jonah is not after justice, but he's after vengeance. He's not trying to make things right He's trying to make himself feel better. You understand? This is the nature of what it means to be human. We don't know how to make 
things right. We meet wrongs by doing wrong. This is our big problem is that we don't know how to solve problems. It's not that we have problems. It's that because we don't know how to solve them, we compound the problem with more problems. We perpetuate the cycle of evil and suffering and injustice in this world. At our shining best, we make things worse. And this isn't just what the Bible has to say. This is actually uh, what all the research shows as well. And I quoted this before, but I want to show you that at the root of anger and violence, inside lies a corrupted longing for justice. And yet we don't know what to do with this longing for justice. Uh, This is... uh, Based on research by Taj Rai, he is uh, now a well-known researcher who works with Alan Fisk at Northwestern, and uh, he published the findings of his research in an article called, How Could They? And if you look in the loop, the newsletter that you get in your inbox, if you click on sermon notes, I have all the information for this article in there if you want to read further. But it says this. This is a redacted version of his research. It looks like both leading theories of violence fail. For one reason or another, neither the disinhibition theory nor the rational theory provides a complete picture for why people hurt one another. What are we missing? We analyze violent practices across cultures and history. We examined records of war, torture, genocide, honor killing, animal and human sacrifice, homicide, suicide, intimate partner violence, rape, corporal punishment, execution, trial by combat, police brutality, hazing, castration, dueling, feuding, contact sports, and the violence immortalized by gods and heroes and more. In other words, a comprehensive study. We comb through first-person accounts, ethnographic observations, historical analyses, demographic data, and experimental investigations of violence. The work was depressing. But in the end, he concludes, we did, in fact, find a pattern in all the violence. There was a unifying theme with all the predictive and explanatory power a researcher could wish for. Across practices, across cultures, and throughout historical periods, when people support and engage in violence, their primary motivations are moral. By moral, I mean that people are violent because they feel they must be, because they feel that their violence is obligatory. They know that they are harming fully human beings. Nonetheless, they believe they should. Violence does not stem from a psychopathic lack of morality. Quite the reverse. It comes from the exercise of perceived moral rights and obligations. So on the one hand, you and I and everyone we've ever met, we are created in God's image. We have innate, hardwired in us a sense of right and wrong. We understand fairness. Child psychologists will tell you, kids, you don't have to teach them about fairness. They instinctually, innately know when something is unfair. And if you have raised kids at all, you know this to be true. If you have volunteered in the nursery, preschool room, you know this to be true. They may not know math. 
They might not know the laws or the justice system, but they know when they have received less in an unfair manner. Parents who are wise know as soon as they start having opinions and they start having opinions right away, it can't just be your word. You have to set up a system, rules and regulations that define what's fair. And kids have a need for all, including the parents, to submit to a higher authority. Where does that come from? And the Bible says it comes from God. We are made in his image. So that part is good. But on the other hand, when that justice isn't prevailing, the way we try to correct the course towards justice actually bends towards violence. We only know how to respond with injustice and immorality as a way to find morality. We don't know how to solve problems. And Jonah says the same thing here. He says, you know, if the universe is like this, I'd rather die. Twice he begs God to take his life. Jonah has lost meaning. He doesn't understand how the universe can exist this way. He doesn't want to live this way. And so that part is good. That's the justice in him. That's the morality in him, the image of God. But the solution he offers is to go east of the city so that he can have front row seats to the destruction of Nineveh. Fire and brimstone, God, rain it down on these wicked people. I've become evil with the evil that I see. He's been corrupted. He's been sucked into the cycle. And this is precisely the human plight that God is trying to address. Look around you, think about your life, consider your own behavior, your hearts, your motives. Why do you offer the solutions that you offer? A second lesson we learn as to why Jonah is angry, angry is that morality tends to lead to moralism. So morality is good. Morality is us made in God's image, understanding there is such a thing as truth. There are moral absolutes. If you don't believe the Bible, just look at Hollywood and the Me Too movement that's spreading across the entertainment industry. Where does that come from? Where, why, where do they get off having standards? If they are relativists and pluralistic and postmodernists, why do they say that's wrong? Sexual harassment is wrong. Because they too are made in God's image. In fact, just this morning I was listening to Reese Witherspoon, famous actress, talking about how she is turned to spirituality and she was sharing the prayers that she prays on behalf of Hollywood. Where does it come from? That's morality. It comes from God himself. But human beings cannot handle being moral. And so we turn morality into moralism. I want to give you my definition for what moralism is. Moralism is this, judgment of others based on your own self-righteousness. So morality is believing there are absolute standards that the universe 
has laws we ought to live by. That's morality. But then we believe we are exempt from those standards. We believe we ourselves are not to blame and that everybody else is deserving of punishment. You deserve correction, not me. That's moralism, self-righteousness. And this is just case in point, just emblematic of the larger, more general human condition, which is that you and I, we really can't handle anything. And that's what the Bible teaches throughout. That goodness corrupts us, that badness corrupts us, and everything in between corrupts us. That whatever we get our grubby little hands on, we will ruin. The you know, most famous story about, of this that illustrates this that Jesus told is the story of the two brothers. Right? There were these two brothers, his father had two brothers, and the older brother uh, was good meaning that he uh, obeyed every command and wish of his father. He took his responsibilities as elder son very seriously. He never disobeyed, according to his own testimony, one single wish or command of the father. He was always good. And then he had a younger brother who took his father's wealth, wished death upon his father, took half the inheritance and took off, went away somewhere, squandered it all, He's clearly the bad one on display for the world to see. And yet, the moral of the story is not about the younger brother who squandered his father's wealth and wished him dead. But the moral of the story, the Jesus' point for telling the story is the older brother was just as bad as the younger brother who displayed his badness for the world to see. In his heart, the older brother was moralistic, he was judgmental. He was self-righteous. He couldn't perceive. He couldn't understand and accept how the father can bestow further goodness upon the younger son who returned home after everything had been squandered. And so he said, I refuse to go to the party. That's the same sentiment as Jonah who said, God, I, want, I don't want to live in a universe like this. Kill me. I'd rather die. And the older brother said, I'm not going to go to the party. I'd rather be outside the party and go hungry. I'm not going to eat that food that you're offering to your son. What kind of son is that? And just around that story, Jesus tells another story about a hundred sheep. And he says, 99 of these sheep have gone astray. And the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one that is lost. And if you have the ears to hear, you hear the actual point of that story, which is not that it's good of the shepherd to go looking for that poor lost sheep, that one. But the point is there are actually no 99 sheep that are not lost. That if you hear that story and identify as a 99, it proves the point that you are lost and you don't even know it. You think you are home, but you're not. You are in need of finding. That's the point that Jesus is making. There is not just one poor sucker out there who needs everybody else's help. Every single person is lost. There is no one good. No, not one. It's not saying that there is no goodness in us. It's saying that everything that is good is laced and and tainted with badness, and in fact, the badness always wins. It's just a function of time and opportunity, provocation. 
We are all capable of every which uh, evil that you've ever heard about, read about, seen. We are not better than somebody who is displaying their badness. We are all equally bad at the very least in our hearts. That we can't handle being moral because as soon as we're moral, we become moralistic. That if we succeed, somehow we think ourselves better than somebody who's not succeeding. Then if we fail, we use that failure to beat ourselves up. And then every time, anytime somebody else fails a little bit worse than us, it's opportunity to jump on that person and highlight their failure so that our failure is a little bit less visible. So whether you succeed or you fail, you're doomed. Whether you're moral or you're amoral, you're doomed. Whether you are 99 or 1, you're doomed. This is the point. There is nothing we will not ruin. I often think about this, and I think about that phrase, and I say this to myself literally in my head, because I ruin everything. I turn everything into an obsession. I go crazy with it, and then I'm imbalanced about it, and the thing that used to help me now hurts me. Every good in my life, every bad in my life, everything, in fact, I have to repent of because I can't handle it. Right? And so often I say this to myself, Peter, this is why you can't have nice things. Whether it's nice things or bad things, I ruin it. And I agree with the comedian Bill Burr who said, every time I drive, Every time I get behind the steering wheel of my car, my inner Mussolini comes out. And I always end up thinking, what are all these other people doing on my road? (laughs) Bill, this is why you can't have good roads. This is why you can't have a good car. Because whether the road is good or bad, whether the car is good or bad, you ruin it. You make it about yourself and you become moralistic, self-righteous about it. What can you handle? What are you capable of handling? You know, God gives you kids, right? Most of you have had kids sitting in here. And you go and ruin them. You know, you make it about yourself. You're trying to live vicariously through them. You control them. You're undifferentiated from them. You're possessive or you're detached. God gives you somebody to love. You go ruin that too. God gives you a great church, an amazing pastor. (laughs) God gives you food. You got issues with it. God doesn't give you food. You got issues with that. God gives you money. God doesn't give you money. It's like Seattle drivers, you know. They're always driving poorly. You ask them, well, the sun came out. Well, it was raining. It was a little windy on I-90. We can't handle anything. We ruin everything. You know, we call this, uh, you know, in in secular vernacular, it's rationalization. We're always excluding ourselves from condemnation. We're never at fault, and we displace blame onto everyone else. I was reading this TechCrunch article. It's called The Plague of Rationalization, and it talks about how hard it is to invest in startups because that industry is plagued with rationalization. Because it's such a precarious industry to get something off the ground, it's so hard. It takes so much work. And there's no way somebody can read the you know, culture and the opportunity correctly enough to succeed. And so we hear about the success stories, but those are way more rare than the failures. And so it talks about all these failures, and it says one of the key things 
that help us understand why companies fail is because of the mindset of its founders and CEOs. And they say the plague is what they call rationalization. They give some examples. Here's some sentences that express the sentiment and mindset. Unfortunately, we just didn't have enough time and ran out of money. Unfortunately, the customers just didn't care enough about our offering. Unfortunately, I had the wrong person running engineering or marketing or sales or finance. Unfortunately, the term sheet fell through at the last minute. Unfortunately, we didn't land a key account that would have saved the business. Notice the self is always excluded from responsibility and blame. It's always everybody else's fault. That's moralism. We punish everyone else but ourselves. In the article, they, they offer a remedy to this. And I'm going to mention this because I think it's pretty biblical. It says, and some of you in the business world, if you've gone to business school or something, you know about this technique. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was founded by uh, uh, Toyota executives who wanted a way to figure out uh, what problems existed in Toyota and to get at the actual issue rather than just addressing the symptoms. They said, ask five why levels of questions. When you come across a problem, and the example they give is with a vehicle that won't start. It says, when a car doesn't start, ask the five levels of why questions. The first is, why won't, a bat- uh, why won't the car start? And the first level, the answer is, because the battery is dead. It's the battery's fault, in other words. The second level of the why question is, why is the battery dead? And then the self-rationalizing uh, answer is, because the alternator isn't working correctly. And then the next level of why question is, why isn't the alternator working correctly? Well, because the alternator belt has broken. It's still the alternator's fault. Uh, and then why is the alternator belt broken? The alternator belt was well beyond its useful service life and not replaced. Now, here's the fifth level of why. Why was the alternator belt Uh, beyond its useful service life and not replaced because the vehicle was not maintained according to the recommended service schedule. And finally, we've gotten to the one to blame. It's you. (laughs) You neglected your car. (laughs) And I bring this up because this is exactly the technique that God employs here when he asks Jonah, why? Do you have good reason for your anger, Jonah? Let me understand. Make your case. I'm not going to try to catch you in the wrong. I want to understand why you believe you're right in your anger. Why you're sitting to the east of the city waiting for its destruction. Why you fled to Tarshish. Why? Why? Just work with me here. I want to work with you. Do you have good reason? And explains why God is not angry. Verse 10 and 11 says this, And the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? Uh, This is a little bit of a sidebar, but I want you to understand uh, what God is saying here, the logic that God is employing here. Uh, 120,000, first of all, that's 
a ton of people back in the day. Cities, populations were not as large as they are today. We have more people on the planet than we've ever had before. You know this. So 120,000 was a big city. In fact, scholars would tell us they may have been one of the greatest cities that existed at that time. They had mastered uh, military skills, and they conquered and devoured other cities and nations. This is modern-day Iraq. And uh, they knew what they were doing, militarily speaking. So it's a great city for that reason. And it, notice it says that there were many animals. That's not God saying that he loves animals. He does, and there are other passages that talk about that. But this is God talking about the economy of Nineveh, right? Because money used to move back then. And so th those were cattle that uh, God is talking about. It's a great city. In other words, the word great doesn't mean just size, but it means strategic. This is an important strategic city on top of the fact that they are people, right? Talks about 120,000 people. Now, this word people is not the word people in the Hebrew. It's a word that means children, and it's a specific version of the word children, which in the Hebrew language referred to three to four-year-olds specifically. So about that age when they're talking and walking and begin, beginning to show signs of being a human being, but not quite there yet. That's the point that God is making. There are 120,000 three- to four-year-olds in this city with a great economy. And it's useful for me, Jonah. I love these people. And on top of that, I have compassion on them. This word compassion is a condescending word. It's actually the word pity. It means that you are in a superior position looking down on somebody. And God's logic that he's trying to lay out before Jonah is this. You think these people are evil. You think they are worse than you. But what I'm telling you is because I'm God and I'm way up here, all people, including you, Jonah, are mere three to four-year-olds at best. God is saying, Jonah, don't you know the prefrontal cortex, the executive functioning of human beings, don't actually develop until they're 25-year-olds. And these people are just three- to four-year-olds. They don't know what they're doing. In fact, this is the exact sentiment that Jesus had on the cross towards the people who were swinging the hammer that was nailing the nails into his wrists and his feet. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even when we think we know what we're doing, we don't know what we're doing. God's saying, I know you think you know what you're doing because you have this moral hard wiring inside of you. You are made in my image. Yes, I give you that. But beyond that, you don't know how to respond to your problems in a way that actually solves those problems. This is why I'm going to solve these problems for you. I'm not going to inflict violence on people because they were violent. I'm going to inflict it on my son. You don't understand the logic. You don't understand the strategy or my plan. But right now, I need to buy time because the time has not yet come for me to send my son. What would you do if you were in my shoes, Jonah? Should I not you notice that language? God is not just saying, because I'm God. He's saying there's a logic here that all of us are uh, invited to think about. Should I not, should I not have compassion on that city? 
Should I not have compassion on these three to four-year-olds? Don't you know, Jonah, if you think you're having an amazing day, the best you can be, you're still four years old. That's all you are. All of your goodness. You add it all up, and it just adds up to a four-year-old's naivete and incompetence. Should I not have compassion on you? I'm God, after all, and you're just a kid. You don't know yet. You don't understand. You don't have the wherewithal. So should I not? It's grace for all, or it's grace for none. We are all exactly the same. Jonah, I know you look at the Ninevites and the violence they have committed against your people, maybe even your relatives. You know, that's personal to you. I understand that. I understand how you feel. But zoom the camera out a little bit more, and you will see that inside of you lies the capacity to be provoked to do every which evil that you have witnessed the Ninevites do and worse. You have it in you because you are at best a moral three to four-year-old. Should I not have compassion on everyone? For example, this vine that grew over your head, did you do anything for it? No, that's just me taking care of you. I appointed that plant. I appointed that worm. I am the author of this lesson. I am the author of your life. In fact, I am your maker. Here you are thinking you're so smart that you understand that you got this, you say, and your best prescription for this predicament is to burn the city down? Really? That's the best you got? If I burn them down, I have to burn you down. This kind of self-oriented, self-righteous, moralistic, condemning judgment that you speak over Nineveh. You don't know what you're doing. You have corrupted justice itself, Jonah. Your only hope is grace and mercy to help you in time of trouble. So we uh, turn to a couple of application points here. The first is for you to take responsibility. I want to invite you to ask the five levels of why questions as a way to engage God's rationale in working with you. Keep asking why until you get to something that you can take responsibility for. Even in the most obviously uh, you know, uh, unjust circumstance you find yourself in, ask why until you can own something instead of blaming everyone else. Second thing, uh, by the way, that idea of taking responsibility, that's 1 John chapter 1, you know, confessing your sin. Second one is to engage culture. It's so easy, especially for people who have religion in them, but I would submit to you that if you're an atheist here, you have a similar kind of arrogance and snobbery because that's what we do as human beings. We think we are better than everybody else. We are standing on moral high ground, we believe, and we find good reason, good reason to help, uh, to hate lots of other people. There's lots of others out there to hate. If you want to hate, there's plenty of people to hate. But rather, the invitation is to engage that culture, engage that people group with love, with grace, with humility and confidence, not in your love, but in God's love. 
Jeremiah 29, God is speaking to the Israelites in a similar situation. They have been taken uh, hostage to Assyria, or, or to, uh, I forget if it was Assyria or Babylon, but they've been taken away from their homeland, and they have these captors, and it, the Israelites had taken a position of hatred and isolation uh, from their captors, and God, to the contrary, gives them this command. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, not for its destruction, and for, for in its welfare you will have welfare." You are called, if you are not a Christian here, you are called to love Christians. You can't judge us for our being judgmental because then you're being judgmental. You are inflicting violence on the violence you're accusing Christians of. And if you are Christians, you're definitely out of excuses. You are called to love our great city, to love our culture, and to love its people, and to seek its flourishing, not to judge it from the east of it. I want to end with this closing verse from 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian church had become arrogant. They had thought they were morally superior. And so Paul writes this as a corrective to their mindset, and it's one that applies to us today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we lay bare before you our hearts and its contents, that it's filled with moralism, self-righteousness, judgment, and violence in response to the brokenness in our world. I pray that we would stand out, not because we're so good, but because we trust you for our goodness. And we have hope that you are working all things out for the good. Use us as instruments of healing, of pursuit, of your flourishing. For all those around us, may we be salt and light, a resource, a conduit of love and truth. Thank you for uh, all the problems we have in our life that we get to bring before you. And I pray that we would not so quickly uh, judge and dismiss things, but to enter into it with kindness, with patience, knowing you care and you love. And I pray that we would humbly ask how we can be part of the solution and not add to the problem. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for the grace and the mercy, the pity you have on us. All, all of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.